Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. This is episode 52. And man, I am just tickled with all the people I get to chat with doing this podcast. And today is no exception. And I'll, I'll chat more about today's guest here in a moment. But it was a great conversation and was very uh, fortunate to have him on. You can listen to this podcast on any streaming platform, and now we're also on YouTube. If you want to see our pretty faces while we talk, or in this case, if you want to see Jeremy's badass home studio, or my very average home studio, you can look at it, check it out on YouTube. Also, big news for Middle Class Rockstar Podcast. We are now uh, joining forces with Chris K's Colorado Playlist, which is a show that is broadcast over 25 different FM frequencies across the state of Colorado. And many of these episodes, basically any of these episodes that are dealing with Colorado artists and dealing with Colorado music, I cut up um, an eight-minute clip, and it plays uh, as a part of Chris K's Colorado playlist. He plays all local music, all all stuff like that, and then... Um, you know, new releases from local artists, whatever. And he also plays this podcast in there. Um, and then usually plays a track from the artist that's featured on the podcast right afterwards. So very thankful to Chris K, who's been on this podcast now twice as a guest, um, for including Middle Class Rockstar on Chris K's Colorado playlist. Happy holidays, everybody. It's I may be a little different this year. Um, you might end up playing... Cards Against the Humanity, Cards Against Humanity, that's what it's called, and drinking cocktails with your family members over Zoom this year. I don't know. But I hope you have a great Christmas. Allie and I is, are having our first Christmas, just the two of us, I think. Um, we'll do some sort of outdoor meeting with both of our families. Her family's in Castle Rock, mine's in Louisville. And, um, but we'll, I think it'll just be the two of us on Christmas Day. And we, we got our own place finally in March, and we have a tree and did the whole thing this year. A fake tree, of course, a small fake tree at that. But, you know, we're, we're definitely playing house at this point. But I wish you, whatever you celebrate or don't celebrate, a great holiday season and a happy new year. Um, my guest this week is Jeremy Lawton. I was very excited to have him on. Uh, he's, of course, the longtime keyboardist and lap steel guitar player for Big Head Todd and the Monsters. And I, I kind of grew up with Big Head Todd. My dad and mom, both huge music fans. And growing up, I got to go to this radio show called E-Town all the time, starting from when I was about eight years old. I remember the first one was Keb Moe. And then I just enjoyed going every week. I never knew who the artist was or anything about him, uh, him or her, but ended up falling in love with pretty much everybody that I saw. And it was a huge, you know, I wouldn't be a musician without E-Town. So it's really cool to get to see all these great artists. So, of course, you know, being mixed up in the Boulder music scene, you know, you you hear about Big Head Todd and the Monsters all the time. And my parents had CDs. I remember playing, you know, in the CD player and in the vehicle. And I remember the very first show where I saw Jeremy with Big Head Todd. And I remember thinking, oh, they have somebody else this time. And it sounds pretty cool. It fills out the sound. I like it. And I was a piano player, so I loved that they added that element, and then he just never left, and he's been in the band ever since, since 2003, I believe. But Jeremy grew up in a very small town of Center, Colorado, 
um, which is that what I think near Alamosa ish. Am I off on that? And when I say near, it could be, you know, an hour from there. <laughs> Center Colorado, his father was a potato farmer. Uh, and he found out early on he had an aptitude for music. And they began making trips down to Colorado Springs for uh, music lessons. And then Jeremy ended up at DU in the commercial music program in the 90s. He was in a couple college bands in the mid-90s, including Electric Swing Set and Psychedelic Zombies. He also worked as an engineer at Kerr Macy Studios from 1994 to 1999. Played in several other bands, did some cool tours. And uh, a couple of the other notable ones, he played in Freddie Jones' band. He's played about 50 gigs with them from 1999 until just last year when they need to fill in. He's been with the Railbenders since 2002 and has produced three of their five albums. He's produced a lot of albums for people. He's got a sweet home studio, which, like I said, you can see on YouTube, um, where he does all kinds of stuff. And he's, he's recorded some of the Big Head Todd records there. He's been in that band since 2003. I said that already. There it is again, since 2003. And we just chat about his musical upbringing, some of the some fun road stories, um, and and what's coming up next for him. What's coming up next for his groups? Um, and you know what? I feel like we have a lot in common because we're both keyboard players. We both went to college for music. We both play lap steel guitar as a as a secondary instrument. And so I was really excited to to chat with him for that reason. I've been producing some records. He produces records. And I thought, oh man. I'd like to be like Jeremy when I grow up. So I was very, very excited to get to uh, chat with him for a bunch of reasons, but partly because I feel like we have a lot of things in common. And actually, we kept chatting for another 30, 35 minutes after the episode was over, and we were both saying that we shouldn't have pressed pause. We should have just kept it going for a little longer. So maybe we'll have to have him back soon and uh, tell some more stories. Let's jump into it right now, my conversation with Jeremy Lawton. A quick thanks to our sponsors. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to www.pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. Getting all your sounds and your stuff together. Getting it together, yeah. With the nice, Jeremy. <laughs> there you we need go. a you need a clicker. I need the clicker. Yeah, get my, that'll be after fifty more episodes. I'll get slightly a, professional. Yeah, congratulations on fifty episodes. Thank you. I I didn't think I'd make it past ten. So <laughs> that's, that's a feat, man. Like that's a lot of talking. Talking is hard sometimes. Talking and so, talking can talking can be hard. Listening can be hard too. Yeah, maybe harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, how how are you? Have have you been uh, have you been stuck in the house for the, all year? I mean, what have how have you been navigating everything? Yeah, I'm good. I'm a little bored and a little grumpy, just like everyone. Um, we had uh, the good fortune of finishing a trip. Uh, we did like a forty show trip that ended on march 10th or march 11th so we were well positioned to take a short break which we were going to do anyway and the break's been a little longer yeah. than we expected sure and uh 
And uh, it's not fun, but what's the alternative, you know? So we'll see what happens. And is there, have you guys even started trying to map out what 2021 is going to look like yet? Or are you just sitting back? Well, at first we started trying to map out what the summer was going to look like. And then we tried to map out what the fall was going to look like. And then we tried to map out what January and February would look like. And then now we're trying to think about, well, maybe, maybe March or April, like maybe not. You know, and like our Red Rocks show that we canceled for June, it got rescheduled for the exact same weekend next June. We're like, well, man, what about that? Like, it's really hard. And as you know, booking a show anywhere is a three-month process if you're doing it properly, Um, especially if you're traveling and... uh, so it's hard to shoot for 90 days from now when people are shooting for like 14 days from now or 20 days from now, what's going to change. And if you're playing in a different state, if you're playing in a different country, you know, like, you know that. So yeah, uh, it's really daunting and uh, everybody's having a hard time. And if you book a show at a place that might not exist a month from now or two months from now, so but everybody's in it together. So I think there's a big boat full of people that are trying to figure it all out at the same time. And there's a lot of smart people that will figure it out. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. So you, you've been in Colorado your whole life, correct? I was reading or, or list, seeing and listening that <laughs> uh, your dad was a, a potato farmer, a small town here in the state, right? Yeah, I'm from uh, Center, Colorado, which is, if you know where the Great Sand Dunes are, uh, down in the San Luis Valley, it's a big, empty space, and Center is right in the middle of that space, Uh, and uh, it's a really interesting place to grow up and be a kid, but uh, that's where we were, and it was fun, and so, uh, yeah, I kind of grew up playing the piano in my, in my, we had like a bunkhouse, I guess you call it. And there was old piano in there. And I started playing that when I was four or five years old. And my mom noticed and she thought it was cool. So she got me into piano lessons and that's how I started. And now, was there a place that you could, that you could go for piano lessons? I mean, was there, was there a piano, a local piano teacher in that town or did you guys have to travel a little bit? Sure. There were quite a few. And, and uh, my mom had a friend down maybe five miles down the road that uh, was doing piano lessons. And so I started, I think when I was uh, seven, six or seven doing piano lessons, like straight, you know, classical piano lessons. And uh, when I was about, yeah, when I was about uh, 12, um, I got really interested in computers and stuff. And my, my uh, mom bought me the Yamaha DX7. It just come out in 1985 or whatever and uh yeah i got really into it and i got really into computers and i had my commodore 64 and like all my stuff all set up and so my parents started taking me to colorado springs uh for a more proper piano lesson that uh i could do electronic stuff too and so it was kind of kind of cool every two weeks i would drive to colorado springs with my dad and put my boom box in my lap and uh, 
where I lived, there were no radio stations. Right. Uh, there was just one radio station. They played a lot of, uh, you know, Spanish language music and stuff and, and a little bit of country music. So when we would drive to Colorado Springs, it was a big deal for me to take my boom box and sit in the front seat, listen to the radio and then record the songs that I had never really heard at home. It was really interesting time. Wow. To, yeah. So <laughs> no kidding. Diff different times. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'll say. And, and then what was it that made you want to pursue that after your childhood? Because you ended up at DU doing, doing music stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I think like a lot of high school kids, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew what I was good at. And I was kind of, I was that kid in my school. My school was really small. There were about 110 people in my high school. Um, my class was 26 and uh, I knew what I was good at, you know, and, and uh, I wanted, I knew that I was going to go to college and I knew a few places and I asked my piano teacher where I should go. And so I applied to Berkeley and North Texas and DU and a couple other places. And I got into all of them, but uh, I got a pretty good scholarship at DU and it just felt better to me. And I was a little nervous about, you know, being 18 years old and living in Boston by myself, you know, like, right. especially being from where I was from. So, so, you know, I got my scholarship letter from DU and I showed it to my mom and I was like, Hey, I think I'm going to go to DU. And she was like, Phew. you know, yeah. <laughs> Cause uh, at that time in 1989, going to Berkeley was uh, 21,000 bucks a year, which seems hilarious now. Yeah. But that was, that was a lot of money in 19, in 1990. So, wow. Um, so I went to DU and, and uh, it was, it was a reasonable fit for me, I think like, uh, I don't know. I, I felt comfortable up here and my grandma lived up here, so I was cool with it. Yeah. Uh, that That's great. And I know you got involved with a couple bands and just to touch on those really quick um, electric swing set and psychedelic zombies. Who, who named those bands? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, electric swing set was the very first band that I played with and we started in 1993 and uh, the guitar player Jeff came up with that name nobody else had anything really <laughs> substantial and yeah uh, three of us were uh, involved in the music school and uh, and then there was also a drummer that's a drummer joke uh, <laughs> yeah right but uh but um just like everybody's college band you know we just started goofing around uh, having fun and uh then we just started playing at Herman's and Herman's was like uh, the cool place for us to play just because it was right down the street. And uh, we played for quite a while in like 94, 95, we were playing, you know, 80 or 100 shows a year, which is a lot for being 21 or 22 years old. And all, all locally or were you guys moving out? Regionally? We did mostly Colorado and we were doing lots of ski towns like... Uh, Breckenridge and Steamboat and and uh I remember we always got really excited we our first out-of-state show was in Jackson Hole at the Meiji Moose oh yeah such such a big deal like oh we're gonna drive seven hours man it's gonna be great yeah. it's gonna be so awesome and uh 
turned out it was awesome, so that's cool. But I think it's still there, right? It okay. is, yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, with Big Head Todd, we played there maybe eight or ten years ago, just for fun. Wow. And and just kind of did an underplay, and it was really fun. And it's exactly the same, and the dressing room is exactly the same. The stages, the stage is like a postage stamp. It was really fun. Uh, it wasn't really fun to load in, but everything else was great. Was it just totally packed? Yeah, yeah, it was fine. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the psychedelic zombies was a band in in Denver, like that started in maybe 1990, 91. And it's a big band, 10 or 11 people, a five piece horn section. Um, Big, weird, crazy funk band. And we always, I remember always going to see them at the Mercury Cafe a lot mm. and at Herman's and some other places. And, and, uh, I don't know how I got started doing it. Um, but I, I went and started practicing with them and then they asked me to be in the band. And so I did it for about three or four years from 95 to 98. And, uh, that was a really great, uh, great time. And everybody in that band was like kind of brainiac, music guy so um you know we had charts and uh most of our practices all we would do for hours was just work on time you know just sitting forward or sitting back or yeah sitting right on the money or who's supposed to sit who's supposed to sit back who's supposed to push forward and like all these i learned a whole lot about playing physically playing with other people during that time so it was cool and where where was your headspace at this time in the nineties? Were you, um, were you wanting world domination with one of your bands? Were you just wanting to be uh, a local studio guy who played in some bands for fun? What was sort of your, your goals at that point? Uh, I don't know. I, this whole time I was, uh, right when I graduated from college, I, um, started working at a studio. Um, uh, what for a while was called silo sound or it was called macy sound studios in the 90s it was called kerr macy music uh and john macy was there a lot and uh, this whole time i was doing that so playing in a band just kind of mingled in with that and i think when you're playing in a band you don't you always have like big dreams but like you know reality kind of checks that a little bit and uh, those days were a lot different. You know, you had tapes and CDs and you're hanging up posters on on telephone poles. So like uh, just playing a reasonably successful, like hard ticket show at a local bar is kind of a form of success at that point, you know, for yeah. me. And so if we could play at Herman's and get 300 people to pay five bucks, we thought we were superheroes, you know, and that was kind of as far as I could see at that point, you know. I would say but, you're a superhero if you can get 300 people out to a show at Herman's. Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I was thinking uh, we played at Herman's before they had the free ticket thing. Like, I don't know if, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Herman's was doing free tickets a lot. I remember when yeah. Alan Roth came up with the free ticket thing and it was kind of not really a version of pay to play like in Los Angeles, but like 
you know, here's your tickets and hand them to people and we'll sort of pay you maybe. Yeah. If, yeah. if a lot of people come, but <laughs> sure. And, uh, yeah. So is it, I'm I'm going kind of in chronological order. I don't know why, but it's okay. We headed no, in this fine. direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, so you played. You started playing with a lot of other groups. Um, in Matthew Moon, Brethren Fast, uh, Sherry Jackson Band, uh, Freddie Jones Band a little bit. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was when you were touring touring with Sherry Jackson. Excuse me. Um, you guys got to open a tour for John Hyatt. Um, did yeah and in 1997 that would have been uh walk on came out in 95 which is my favorite hyatt album and uh mm-hmm. little headed probably would have just come out uh yeah this was it was the little head uh, tour, tour. Yeah. and mm-hmm. what was what was that like i mean did you guys end up getting to jam with them at all or interact i mean what was what was the experience um no, we didn't. We didn't uh, get to play with them at all. Um, but it was really cool for me. Like I, it seemed like a step forward for me, and that was kind of like first time that I had been hired just to play the piano for someone that I didn't really know well. And so I was excited just to travel and to travel for you know I think we did six weeks or two months, and we went all the way to Montreal and then we, uh, you know, Seattle, San Diego, like I just did the whole thing. Yeah. And, um, I was, I was, I always remember like walking into these, these rooms that, uh, I thought were so enormous and cool, you know, that are rooms that since I've been in, you know, 20 or 30 times each, but, uh, it's so cool just seeing those guys, uh, stand up there. And then, uh, they were playing, uh, cry love a lot. Yeah. And uh, that was the band at that time was Davey Farragher was playing the bass and then uh, David Gluck was playing the guitar and and uh, John Hyatt. I can't remember the drummer's name. And they would just play that song and they were all sitting up there and they were doing this little bounce, you know, and like the lights were on and I'm like, oh, man, I'm here. You know, I made yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, wait, this that's not even me. I'm just. I'm around something that's cool that I've heard of and, you know, and all those shows sold really well and they were in a bus and we would follow their bus in a van, you know, every night. And it was really fun. And, uh, I didn't know much about John Hyatt, but you know, since then I, uh, you know, now I know all those songs and I really appreciate that quality of his writing, you know, like it's really, really cool. And we've played with him since. Oh, and, uh, yeah, we played with them maybe uh, six or seven years ago. We did a trip for a few weeks. And, uh, was, that, was that with Big Head Todd? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And I, it was cool because I, uh, I got that same kind of vibe again, that same feeling. You know, I was like, oh, man, like, this is cool. And, you know, he's, he's got a powerful thing coming off the stage, you know, with his voice and, and uh it's really fun to see stuff like that. And it kind of took me back to when I was 25 again, you know, it was really neat. Yeah. Oh, that's, no, that's, that's really cool. And were you, yeah. uh, were you brought on for that tour specifically, or were you already with, uh, with the group when, when all that started happening? Um, I don't, I'm not so sure how 
I started doing that. I was friends with a guy named Brian McRae who plays drums. Yeah. Uh, he lives in Lyons, a great drummer, and uh, Glenn Esparza, who's a guitar player. Uh, he's since moved to Los Angeles, but we were just kind of friends. And uh, the Sherry Jackson band had been a three-piece for a while, and they'd just done a new record uh, produced by Steve Berlin uh, from Los Lobos. Right. And I think they just wanted to, I think maybe they got this trip and they wanted to just kind of step it up a little bit and add more noise, you know? And so I was standing closest and, and so, yeah. And it was, it was, that was pretty much the only trip I did. I, I kind of stopped doing it right after that and they had some other people start doing it. So. And were you at this point, had you started playing much uh, slide lap steel stuff or were you pretty much a keys guy at that point? Yeah, not at all. I was just playing, uh, just playing keyboards on that trip i took a, a oregon and a leslie and a Rhodes, and then a, you know i was i was kind of in this phase where i was doing a bunch of Rhodes pedals or stomp boxes and a twin with right. my Rhodes and that kind of thing and and um, that was what i had on that trip so oh really cool yeah yeah uh, and and then i guess short shortly after that you had an opportunity with freddie jones band yeah, and you've done you've done some some gigs with them. Um, how did that gig come about in '99? And as I'm looking at your at your timeline here, I just think it's um, really cool how many how many artists you've played with. And looking, it's like, oh my gosh, you played with them. You played with them. Um, it, it's a really it's a really neat thing as the list gets deeper. But how did that opportunity come about? Uh, well. Again, that's just, uh, it seems to be like the same story every time, just standing yeah. closest. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, you know, I do think I have a, like a, a certain skill where like I have perfect pitch and I can hear songs really fast. You know, if I, if I could physically write fast enough, I could write down what's happening while, as I hear it, you know. And, and uh, that always happened easily for me. And then so turned in that I could sit in turned out that I could sit in with bands pretty easily like that um, and write my charts if I needed them or whatever. Um, at that time, the Freddie Jones band was breaking up for like the first time, I think. And uh, Brian McRae, who had played in Sherry Jackson band, he called me and they just had two shows, two or three, just the two main guys in the band and they needed somebody to come and play keyboards. And it was, the first show I did was at the Gothic. I think we did maybe two nights at the Gothic. Yeah. And, and then that was kind of the end of it. That was like the first time that the Freddie Jones band broke up and they've, they've kind of had a, a up and down kind of thing with their band over the 30 or 35 years that they've been playing. So the current iteration of their band is uh, six or seven years old, I think. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and when did you start in all this mix? When did you start getting really into production and engineering? Because I know that's a, a big part of what you do as well. Yeah. Uh, like I said, in, in 94, I started working at a studio and, and I actually was playing in, you know, my college band still. And I went and worked for free, basically, for a long time, for six, eight months. And then... I kind of became the, you know, the house engineer, you know, like if you walk into the door of the recording studio and you're like, I need to record something, then I'm the guy who's standing there 
Yeah, sure. So that's a really great experience because you end up recording so much weird stuff, some amazing stuff, some terrible stuff, <laughs> yeah. some stuff that's that you really understand musically and some stuff that you just don't understand at all. And uh, like I said, when I was a little kid, I was really into computers and keyboards and MIDI and all that stuff. And that kind of parlayed itself into studio gear and equipment and engineering and, and production. You know, it just, it's a familiar story for a lot of people. And uh, so the whole time I was doing that, when I would come home, I would, I would just go be the house engineer at Kermes until about, 1999 and then Kermacy had an unexpected closure a quick unexpected closure in oh, 19, oh. 1999 and uh and uh I had just started moving my stuff uh into my basement uh and so it actually was good timing for me and that was kind of right about the time when the whole basement studio phenomenon kind of became accessible monetarily to people yeah and like uh eight app machines were uh you know attainable and uh the computer recording stuff was just starting to get where you could do stuff on computers you still the computers still weren't good enough to do everything on but you could do a little hybrid of computers i used to have a digital performer yeah. on my computer and then my adapt machines would follow it you know with uh with simpty and so so that's a totally different art now i i would say i mean it wasn't as simple as uh turning on logic and plugging in an interface no no there was uh it wasn't that much different but you know just the stuff with tape machines and and uh all that and uh the, the planning stages and the waiting and the time to do things was a lot longer, but otherwise it's, it's real similar. Um, and you had to, uh, just in your music brain or your like production brain, you had to like make commitments sooner. Right. When you're, when you're using tape machines or, or when everything takes forever. Right. So that's actually kind of healthy, you know, to make decisions sooner than later. I think that, uh, with the new, the new world of all computer all the time, you can, you can get away with being a little bit lazy. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, no problem though. I mean, it's fine and it's really fascinating and fun, but uh, things have changed like so dramatically uh, for the better, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. going to ask if you thought something was lost in the new recording process. Uh, well, uh, so much more is gained, but it's all, you know, a lot of it can be fluff, uh, you know. Um, I think probably like the one thing that I think about uh, when I think about what's changed is like, yeah, being able to make good choices sooner was more important, uh, especially like in the days of two-inch tape, like, uh, you know, like, in 1995 a roll of two inch tape was 200 bucks yeah and now and now it's uh way much way more than that so mm. um 
you had to really think about what you were doing and like how like how you were going to plan things and and now you can just throw up you know oh yeah my song's like 164 tracks and i'm just gonna worry about later i'm just gonna figure it out and it'll be fine and uh and it's all you know it's relatively free right to just to just spin out in your own brain and that's uh sort of a coin flip you know and it can be really fun though so well and i most of our listeners are probably listening on spotify or apple podcasts or soundcloud but for anybody watching on youtube um the your background is your home studio and it looks like you got a lot of cool stuff back there and you're seeing mine in the background too i've got a packing blanket and a couple panels but uh but yours is the is the real deal back well that's all, all your all your kick-ass gear is on the floor that's why i see you got some guitars back there too so yeah <laughs> and you have the sm7 so you know sm7 jokes for everyone that's cool for everyone i, I yeah. just got it i just uh because i wanted to be in on the jokes yeah so well it's the uh, desert island microphone man that's the one yeah yeah so. so so are you you've recorded a lot of records down there right i mean you're you're yeah full service studio i know you've done uh, some big and todd records and some rail benders records yeah is that something you do consistently or just with the band you play in um it was for quite a while um until you know like 2005 or so i found out i found that i was gone a lot after about 2004 and it was kind of hard to keep something going i also don't i'm not so sure about you know having strangers in your home all the time is a great idea and so mm. um just kind of be selective and also like basement drums uh you can pretend that basement drums sound good sometimes they can yeah uh but there really is, there's no substitute for physical space and air around a drum set. And so I try to, um, you know, go places and do drums and basics and stuff and then bring it back here. And I think that's also a pretty familiar thing for a lot of people these days. So Absolutely. Well, there's no, uh, there's certainly no drums in this small room. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, no recording drums anyway. But, right. Um, so you're where i guess we're in our chronological interview that turned out this way we're now in the early 2000s um and where you've started playing with the uh, rail benders and with big ed todd which are still both uh current gigs for you yeah um how did those how did those two uh, first come about and and are, is it the right place right time thing again uh yes yes it is uh in the late 90s uh i played with a guy named matthew moon and we played at the original soil dove a lot mm. uh and like herman's yeah same story man same story all the time uh hearing stories about herman's when i when i talk to artists who are playing around in the 90s and early in early thousands it sounds like that was the hot spot it was a little bit different like herman's uh um the variety was a little wider than it is now and uh you know at at a certain point there uh hermans was doing hard ticket shows where and they're they're trying to get back to that now a little bit so instead of begging your friends to go and go see you at hermans at 6 30 at night you know on a wednesday like it was a little bit different where they would have two bands a night 
maybe three. So, um, but uh, I was playing with this guy named Matthew Moon and the Big Head Todd band, they had their big, their big album in like 93, 94. And they played a couple hundred shows a year for four or five years straight. And then they burned out and uh, they took all of 1998 off. So the drummer, uh, Brian, he subbed a couple shows for Matthew Moon and came and played and had fun. And, and uh, I met him that way. And uh, then in 2004, uh, I guess they were doing a trip where they wanted to have more noise and they had a new record coming out that had a lot of keyboards on it. And uh, he was the only guy who had like a keyboard player's number in his phone, you know? Wow. <laughs> so he called me and, and uh, I don't know, I'm probably exaggerating, but he called me and uh, asked if I would like to, you know, come practice some tunes. And I was like, yes, yes, I would. Thank you. And, uh, I went and practiced and, uh, and they liked the noises I was making. So, uh, they hired me to do that trip. And then a, like a week after that, he called me and he's like, well, we're playing new year's at the Fillmore. So you can just come do that if you want to. And I was like, yeah, that's great. He's like, well, it's three hours and, and we'll just send you some CDs or whatever. Yeah. And you can, we don't have time to practice. And, so I, in the mail, I got like nine CDs, you know, like a hundred songs or something. Did you get a set list? No. Oh, man. No. <laughs> no. But I was lucky because, you know, Big Head Todd is like the Denver band of the 90s for me, for people my age. And uh, I, I knew a lot of it kind of like subconsciously, like it was just kind of baked in a little bit. And so I... I wrote my charts real fast and I knew about a third of the songs anyway, just from having heard them on the radio so much. And, and, uh, it went fine and I was terrified, but it was fine. And I don't think those guys even listened to what I was doing during the show. They just kind of just let me have my fun over there. And there was a, and the, the Colorado sound recording truck was right behind the Fillmore and they were doing a, a simulcast to KBCO and I went in, I knew all the guys in the truck. So I went into the truck and I'm like, Hey, what's going on? They're like, Oh, nothing. I'm like, did they tell you to keep all my stuff really quiet? And they're like, well, yeah. I was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so like I knew, I knew it was just like, like they were just kind of indulging me, you know, to let me play the show, which was cool. Maybe best case scenario was them not saying anything, uh, to you then because if they heard something off that that'd be the reason for it for them talking. yeah <laughs> I don't know. yeah i don't know so. and so this uh this this tour that you did with them um because the you were saying the record had a bunch of keys on it um you did not play on that it was a riviera uh no it's the one after riviera it's called crimes of passion passion okay and you yeah. didn't play the keys on that album no no i didn't so um, I just got the album and then kind of, you know, backwards learned the songs and uh, and just tried to show up. And like Todd played a lot of the keyboards on that album himself. Uh, oh, wow. And yeah. And because uh, he's kind of a do it yourself or like he'd he'd make his demos at home and 
finish them all and then bring it to the band all completely finished so uh no kidding i just yeah so i just learned the songs and just you know tried to make my make my sounds sound like the sounds on the record and you know just get it exactly right and really familiar for them yeah uh because that was what the job was you know and uh they liked it so and that at what point did you go from feeling like, oh, they're letting me come along to play or I'm, I'm jumping on this tour to what point did you start to feel like, okay, I'm a, I'm a member of this band. I'm the, I'm in it. I, my opinion matters. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I, I like to make a joke that like, uh, I felt like I was in the band once when I saw a picture, a promo picture and I wasn't on the, in, on the edges. And I was, there was like a guy in between me and the edge of the photo. So it couldn't get cropped, <laughs> you know? And that's like, that's my, that's, that's how I thought that maybe I was in the band, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how that works. And, and, uh, I'm not concerned with how that works, I guess, but I think, you know, after the first thousand shows, I guess I felt like I was in there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but I I really respect uh you know it's an interesting gig because they were 15 years into their band before I played my first show. Yeah, and uh, and people understand that band as three people, and and it's really important to like respect that and kind of and uh, understand what that means and and. It's also fun because uh, for me, because they they get to make hard decisions that I don't have to worry about, you know, and they uh, and when I find out their hard decisions or whatever, like they're usually right on the money. So it's uh, there's two sides to like if I'm actually in the band or not, like there's good and bad. So I don't mind it. Well, I, I've I've definitely seen it both ways. I, I'm a '90s baby, and I grew up in Louisville, just outside of Boulder. So my dad, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had and I'm sure still has the Big Head Todd CDs in the basement. And I remember listening through to Stratagem and things like that, and um, you know, whatever he had, the live stuff. And he would always drag me down to E-town. Um, mm-hmm. Both my parents would, and I, they didn't have to drag me for very long because I I loved it. But I remember seeing. Um, you know, seeing the band without it. And I remember the first time seeing, seeing it with that added element um, with you in Uh it. And I dug it. I said, Oh man, you put some keys in these songs. These are, uh, it's incredible. So I myself, I loved it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I mean, to your previous question, I, I'm not sure when the time was where I kind of changed my attitude from being where I was just copping parts off the CDs to like, maybe kind of trying to, insert my musical opinion yeah or kind of be a little more creative and there was a time like when i was uh just starting to learn the lap steel i had played pedal steel for a while and then i stopped playing it at shows because we would fly and to fly to check it would be 50 bucks a flight Mm. and uh over a weekend i would spend two or three hundred dollars checking my guitar and so I didn't do that for one weekend and just bought kind of a cheap lap steel and kind of tried to learn that. And turns out I liked it more, but I liked it so much. I started trying to play lap steel on every song and everybody's like, Hey man, 
you know, because it's so much fun to make those noises, you know. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But they made you so, turn it. They made you dial it back a little bit. A little bit. But uh, but I'm still, you know, I was still allowed to express my opinion and try to, you know, be interpretive or like, you know, insert a few ideas. And also like occasionally there's there's um there's situations where like if i'm the music guy like the music school dude right like my opinion might carry a different uh not more weight but a different kind of weight Mm. uh in conversations so i think that we've done a pretty good job of of uh managing all that and you know everybody wants everybody wants the same outcome you know so and uh we've had plenty of time to practice practicing so (laughs) yeah i'm going on 20 years now yeah well i've been doing it 17 the band has been doing it since 1986 well you sure sure but i I mean with with with, uh you with them you with them as well yeah Um, and and i i know you've done some recording stuff with with the band in your basement as well when did mm-hmm. when did that start did that start with rock steady in 2010 or or um was it before that um i'd say that was probably the very first time where we did a lot of stuff at my house um uh todd lived in chicago for a while and he came back to denver and right when he came back uh his stuff was all in boxes and so we came over to my house to practice and uh we started recording our practices and then we started making demos and stuff and and uh a couple of our demos were just like well that's the song what's the problem like let's just finish it and mix it and yeah and i was really terrified to to mix it like i'm terrified to mix all the time you know because there's a there's a weird like responsibility to it you know it's like you're the you're the chef who adds the the salt at the end and you could totally ruin everything yeah <laughs> you know uh but i mix it and and it's okay and uh i some people like the way it sounds i like the way it sounds okay and uh after that um we just started having rehearsal over here and recording rehearsals and also we have a pro tools rig at shows and i was recording all the shows with pro tools and so uh i was in charge of that so i was always making like roughs or or live cuts of stuff that we had to send to places and i mixed uh uh, we did a 2008 dvd from red rocks and i mixed that in 5.1 here at my house which was really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so on these shows that you were recording, did you, I, I mean, aside from, you know, worrying about playing the songs, were you having to go around all the instruments and mic things up and get tones before the show? No, huh? it's just a, it was just a, a copy of whatever the monitor guy had set up for his pre. Like, you know, a lot of, well, lots of modern boards, you know, you can just do a USB or a, or whatever right out of the back of the board and and do that so i did have a little kind of uh mix setup in my computer that would kind of make a pretty reasonable stereo mix at the end of every show so we could listen to stuff if we needed to yeah but 
you can burn yourself out trying to listen to your shows though for sure oh sure so, yeah i can imagine is there any um any stories you can stories you can think of excuse me like uh just a crazy road story whether it's um, a collaboration with an artist or um, something that went terribly wrong a missed a missed sound check as you look back through the years surely there's a few oh there's oh there's a zillion of them but uh i don't know one missed sound check we uh, we went to uh where did we go we went to boise one time and it was one of the first times we'd flown southwest in a while and our monitor guy uh you know, on your Southwest ticket, there's like B15 and then there's your, there's your gate number, you know, your gate A32. So we're, our, our flight left out of gate B3 and our monitor guy's ticket was uh, uh, B7 or something. And so he went to gate B7 looking for B3 or whatever. And so he missed the flight and we were all on the plane and then they closed the door and like, you know, when they close the door, it's game over. That's it. And uh, I'm like, hey, where's Jonesy? Like, I don't know, man. Let's call him. So call him, and he's like, what's going on? Where are you? Oh, uh, well, I'm getting a sandwich. Like, oh, well, <laughs> oh no, uh, oh you no, mi you missed the flight, and and uh, and he missed the flight. Somehow he found another flight. Like he found like a Delta or something weird, like something that doesn't happen in Boise much. And he got to the show like five minutes before the show started. But it was since it was a fly show, there was already, you know, monitor guy and, and front of house guy from the venue was there. So Jonesy was Jonesy's fine. He, he, he made it. Job. Yeah. Good. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, and uh, and uh, just funny stuff like that. I do remember uh, I was trying to think of funny stories like we did in 2012. We did a tour with the Bare Naked Ladies and Blues Traveler and Cracker. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, Johnny Hickman from Cracker lives in Loveland. And so he's around a lot and we we're familiar with each other and good friends. And uh, Bare Naked Ladies Encore, they played Don't Stop Believing. And right at the start of the song, there's the guitar lick. It's like, and the joke for the whole trip all summer long was like, they would start playing that and Johnny Hickman would come out from the side of the stage and like, like there's a spot on him when he walks around and then they start, they play the song. And Bare Naked Ladies actually is a very underrated, very good band. Like everybody's just like top shelf musician so johnny came out there and he like he rocks out the solo or whatever and then we were playing uh as the sh the tour comes to a close you know like there's four shows left three shows left and like we've done you know 25 shows or something and everybody's like so what are we gonna do you know and like the third to last show was in boston at the uh the outdoor thing in the bay I can't remember the name of it right now. And I had this idea and I'm like, for like a couple days, I just went to every guy and every other band. I'm like, okay, so for the journey song, everybody grabs a guitar, strap on a guitar. Don't, you don't have to plug in anything. Just wear, wear a guitar Yeah, or a broomstick or like a drum or like whatever. And then when he's just turned to 
to come play the we're just all going to be there's just going to be a line of like 25 dudes all with guitars and everybody's going to be going like we made this big parade all the way around the stage and like every guy from every other band was like doing it with guitar and then like the end of the song everybody's like in the front like and it's funny and it's sort of funny sort of lame story but the problem was there were two shows left and then so the next two shows you're just like on pins and needles you're like oh my god what are they gonna do to us you know are they gonna like kick us off like they're not gonna kick us off on the last show (laughs) and and they found out whose idea it was yeah and so we're sitting there and then we were in portland maine and uh there's a YouTube video of it. We're in Portland, Maine. We're playing some song and our encore for our like 30 minute set or whatever was uh, Sexy and I Know It. And we had this weird like kind of Delta weird slidey noisy version of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we're sitting there start playing that and like and Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies comes out from the wing and he's wearing a thong like a lady's thong you know like or like a a dude stripper thong and it's like shiny and apparently he's a he's <laughs> gifted you know in the in the in the low end you know and so he's yeah. running around like and his ass is hanging out and he ran up on the drum riser and he starts dancing in the drummer's face and i'm like all his junk's like in the drum set and like and it was awful it was awful and it was great because he totally won the battle but just funny stories you know there's you get you get tired you know if you're traveling for six eight weeks or something or months at a time like your brain comes up with weird ideas you gotta make your own fun somehow i guess yeah you guys have had the same crew and everything for a long time right same monitor people awesome dan's been with the group forever is right it's the same. um yeah well the band had uh the same well it's had a few tour managers uh awesome dan didn't been doing it for four or five years you know uh he's not doing it in 2020 because right no one is no one's doing anything yeah uh uh like in the 90s uh the band had a tour manager matt need and then uh the, and then this guy named Jeff Waring, who uh, was the guitar tech, he turned into the tour manager uh, when Matt Need finished. And so he did it for mm, almost 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, oh. yeah. It's interesting stuff, though. Tight, tight-knit community. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's important to, if you're in a confined space with your friends, you know, to understand what your friends can handle from you and what they can't and yeah. understand what people need and don't need. And, and, uh, it's a, it's a challenge just personally to hang out with the same people like that all the time, but everybody has the same goal. So we figured out how to do it. Yeah. No, as so many bands, as so many bands don't figure out how to do or can't do for a very long time. And, um, you guys have done it for a very long time. A while. Um, yeah. And as we just kind of referenced uh, 2020 shenanigans again, um, you guys have been doing this monthly video thing for 
a while where you've been, it's either been something from a live performance or, you know, like the mini documentary on you that came out last month. Did you guys feel like you were very equipped to deal with this? It seems like you guys kind of already were, um, you know, had your online community and we're doing, we're doing things well. Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons for it. Like, um, we were sitting around trying to think about, well, is it time to make a record or something or an album or an EP? And like, I don't know. Is it? Sure, I guess. Like, should we try to do that? And like, you know, how and how are people consuming music? You know, and like, where are people going to see this or hear it? Mm -hmm. um, is this going to be on regular terrestrial radio? And the answer is, maybe if we pay a lot of money we can yeah. get it on the radio and you know we can throw it on spotify and or send it to TuneCore or something and just throw it out there and flip a coin you know like so sure we're trying to think about well how can we kind of try to be creative and still kind of insert ourselves in facebook and instagram and all that and have content for our fans who we know are going to be there who like what we do and how can we maintain that relationship and do something a little different, have a little bit of fun. And so like, well, let's just, let's learn a song and record it and film it all in one day. Yeah. One, once a month. And, and like, it doesn't have to be this big, like, Oh, we're making a record. We're trying so hard. We're going to like, stage the release of the record and we're gonna get everything lined up and we're gonna spend a whole bunch of all of our money to do this like we just wanted to have like easy fun content yeah and so we're like well let's just make a video every month and and uh so that's what we did and uh you know some of them do better than others and i don't know you know what the the real value of it is but the perceived value for us and for people who are watching what we're doing is is immense you know and it's fun and it's something to talk about and in lieu of making a record uh it's something different a lot of fun and then maybe we'll make an album at some point you know soon but mm, sure I, I don't know it's it's different you know that the music industry industry is still operating in a certain respect on like an album kind of album cycle kind of uh thing but yeah less than ever you know and there's a lot of artists who just put out a single and like put it out and get behind it and and uh see what happens and so we're not so much trying to put out singles as just having something for our some kind of maintenance content for the people who we know are there waiting for us and right you know because maintaining maintaining your current group of fans is like kind of the new success you know like it's a, it's a it's a form of success like finding those people and doing the things that you know they enjoy and right you know kind of kind of making a little bit of a two-way relationship uh, in a certain respect is more important than ever, you know? 
And what's what's been your favorite of those videos that's come out? If if we toss one in the show notes, what's the one to go? Everyone should go watch. Well, obviously, the mini documentary about me is the best one. But uh, hey, that one was very well done. There was there was drones in that in that uh, in the filming there. Yeah, yeah. That's so, heck. Um, I don't know. Like, we did have fun. Uh, you know, like I'm a little bit down on doing covers, uh, unless they're Fleetwood Mac covers. I love those. But uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, there was this weird thing. I have a I have a buddy who always told me that we should play Brandy by Looking Glass. Yeah. And then some people sent emails to our website like, you should cover Brandy by Looking Glass because the guy's voice sounds just like Big Head Todd. And like, no, nah, whatever. Yeah. And then so like we were kind of at a loss one month for something to do. I think it was April, probably April or May. And uh, like, well, do you want to you want to do a fresh song? And like, well, maybe not quite right now. Like, should we do just some bizarre cover just for the heck of it? Because 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 music. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, well. My buddy Greg's like, he loves looking glass brandy. Like everyone says, and like somebody else was like, my friend so and so also told me we should play that. I'm like, well, let's just learn it. And you know, it is cool. It is one of those cooler '70s songs that's not one four five. You know, it's just like there's some interesting stuff going on it, and there's there's a horn chart, you know, and like, fine, let's do that. You know, and same thing. Uh, learn it record it and film it all in was about a day and a half for that one because there were extra people involved right right uh so i don't know it's fun and then i i i I was trying to do an experiment with that one where i would i would i've never really like tried to hard sell a video to somebody and so i posted it on my facebook and stuff a lot yeah and uh and it did really well. It did uh, a quarter of a million views in a yeah. month. And then, and then it totally died. Like, but I was just trying to navigate that world because there's, you know, there's so much about how to make a video travel on the internet. Like, and uh, I had never experimented with that before. So. And what do you think it was about that video? I, I know it was cool. I first saw it on uh, Erica Brown's page. Um, mm -hmm. I saw there's a bunch of cool uh, local musicians that were in on it. What do you think it yeah. was about that uh, video that made it get a quarter of a million views uh, in a month? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think because there's um, girls in it. And Erica Brown looks cool, man. Like no matter... I've never seen a picture or a video of Erica Brown where she doesn't look cool. Yeah. And, and that's a real skill, man. Like, like, and she's got a great attitude all the time. Yep. Uh, regarding music and like, that's cool. And CJ, the other lady singing, she looks fucking cool, you know? And like, you see cool people and singing and like, uh, as far as like why i don't know like our uh who knows or like you know how sometimes content will get somewhere you didn't know it was going to get and then it'll go right 
without you, it'll go somewhere. So maybe that's what happened to it. I feel embarrassed so. to, to say this, and maybe this is the uh, the '90s baby coming out. But when I first saw it, I didn't realize right off that it was a cover. And one of my friends said, "Oh, dude, are you serious? You know, you got to go back yeah. to the original." So I listened to the original and then went back and watched it again. Yeah. But now I now I realize um, how embarrassed I should be that I I wasn't really familiar with the original. Oh, I don't know. Like that's. It's like the number 12 or number 13 Billboard song of 1972. Right. So that's a while ago. Yeah. But I thought it was really interesting how people, uh, just lay people, are like, oh, my gosh, that version is so amazing. You guys did a such a great job. And I was like, well, like, we're doing, like, it's total carbon copy. Like, I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, we we pulled the horn chart exactly. And we added one extra part, but, and instead of men singing, it's, it's women and, you know, a girly man in the back, but, but, uh, you know, like I tried to cop the Wurlitzer part, like note for note, just cause I thought it was cool. And, and sometimes like doing a cover, it's fun to figure out exactly what happened and then apply your own idea once you found out what actually happened, you know, but yeah. It's interesting to see how people are like, oh my gosh, that's so great. I'm like, yeah, it is great. It's great the way it was. And we just, it just played it. Has a, yeah, it has a different sound quality. That's all, you know, it's just a little brighter and has more people. Yeah. It's right. interesting. But hard, hard to know where that, uh, where that stuff comes from and what travels and why. Uh, yeah. As you look ahead now over the next few years of your career, um, do you see, I mean, obviously you can't uh, see the future, but do you see anything changing for you or wanting to change for you? Have you always wanted to be in a punk hair band that writes songs about the color pink? I mean, is there anything that you feel like I'd really like to do this while I'm, I'm still here on earth? I don't know. I, I'm hoping that someday I'll learn how to play one instrument really well. <laughs> like I'm kind of like, okay at playing a couple things um i would like to get really good at playing one instrument um i think at some point i'll put out some of my own songs mm. um i always you know i have i have 50 in my head and i have 20 in my computer but nobody has any of them anywhere so um and that's, you know, like when you talk to like your songwriting buddies about it, um, advice for songwriters and you're like, make a bunch, make a bunch of songs, be prolific, make a song every day, like write a hundred songs. Right. If you, if you come up with 10 good ones, that's 10 great songs. And so I've never been able to follow that advice mm. uh, in my own life. And so I think before I, stop i would like to follow that advice and write you know 70 or 80 songs and come up with eight or 10 good ones and and let someone hear them but i'm 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 still even being 48 or whatever i'm still way too precious about my own stuff for yeah. people and i hope that before i uh wrap it up i'll get over that yeah so and uh I don't know. I would like to, uh, I'd like to 
you know, produce more albums at home and stuff. And I used to do it quite so much for local bands. And, and then I got a little busy and I kind of slowed down a little bit and doing that kind of stuff and, and like mixing, I, I do like mixing. I just hate finishing mixing. Yeah. Know? Right. Right. And, uh, a lot this year since i've been sitting around this year i've been practicing a lot of mixing and stuff and it's definitely not like riding a bike you know you have to do it all the time and just the tastes change so fast right uh in mixing and, and uh the sound of songs uh changes so fast now you know so much faster than it used to do you have to listen for different things when you mix a record now versus when you mixed a record 12 years ago? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, um, a lot easier to listen to so much more stuff now, you know? Um, I feel like, uh, you know, the way people are mixing songs right now, a lot of people are skipping, some mastering processes sometimes and like people are just like this gorilla attitude you know that a lot of people have and so uh you have to listen a lot to the way people are arriving at the end of their at the end of their song and mm. not just production ideas but just like overall sounds of things you just have to listen listen to everything and i do like listening to everything yeah um but when I'm sitting here, like if I'll just get get my mix the way I like it and get the get it pumped up a little bit and then just flip through Spotify right next to it over and over and over and over and over and just find out what I'm doing wrong and then and then uh uh with the computer stuff now, the advances and everything in technology, there's so many more ways to get it wrong. <laughs> you yeah, know? right, sure. Like yeah, like, like the world is your oyster and you can definitely screw things up quickly. <laughs> Whereas in the old days, the tools, the tools to ruin everything were a lot more expensive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but. Well, well, thanks for, you know, the stories and the insight. Um, it's much appreciated. Thanks for coming on. Did, did we leave out anything? Did we skip any years? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I had anything cool to say except just where I'm from and what I did, what I do. I don't know. That's the end. It's a, it's all really cool stuff. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll keep you on the line for just a, a second if you don't mind, but I'll say goodbye to the audience formally. Thank you uh, so much, Jeremy, for coming on. And, um, yeah, I'll check next, next time I want to do the interview in your basement because that looks really cool. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah come check it out thanks all right all right thank you to jeremy lawton my guest today um great dude i'm glad i got to know him i'm glad we chatted i have a feeling he'll be back sometime that was a lot of fun we're gonna play things out with a big head todd song i asked him what he thought would be appropriate what's what fits the vibe what song we should use and he suggested New World Horizon, which is the title track off of their 2017 album. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to support 
We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. I post up content regarding both the podcast and my personal music career, and you can support for less than the cup, one cup of coffee per month. For $3, you can support and, you know, help me continue to grow this thing and reach more listeners, get in more people's ears. If you'd like to help out in a completely free way, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to your podcasts. For instance, if you're listening on Apple Music, it just takes a few seconds to hit that five star. And if you have a few more seconds, say, hey, this podcast is awesome. Jeremy was awesome. Five stars. Go listen to it. He'd love it. It's actually a really, really huge help. Um, it only takes a few seconds and it's completely free. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can direct them to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Here's New World Horizon.
Rockstar.